Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Mike Solana, VP at Founders Fund. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Mike, I, I credit you, among other things, at Founders Fund to being sort of the uh, the bearer of the ethos or sort of the uh, the the soul of Founders Fund in, in some <laughs> ways. I don't know if you, you accept that. But, but I say that to say, what, what is the soul or what is the ethos of, of Founders Fund? How do you describe it and how has that evolved uh, over time? You've been there for, for a bunch of years now. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting you, you say that because I, I do think that to a certain extent, like even internally, I'm sort of seen that way. I mean, it's more like, I wouldn't say like the soul of Founders Fund, but more like a cheer. I, I was the cheerleader uh, for like who we were day one when I started, you know, eight years ago, I was obsessed with the manifesto. I was, I was obsessed with the sort of like fringe technology, science fiction in real life, all of that stuff. And then over time, you know, I started running brand and just telling our story professionally. Like that became a big part of my job. It's creative programming content and, and really just doing that. So externally, I started doing what I was already doing internally. And I think it's just something that I really cared about. I, I didn't, when I started working in venture, I mean, I was an editor living in New York, writing science fiction. I didn't even know what the technology industry was. I came out because I loved Peter and I believed in the kinds of things that he was talking about. This is back in like, let's see, 20, 2009, I think I met him. And, and what, what were the ideas that drew you to him? Was the education stuff? It was the one, stuff? there was one thing that was the gateway and it was uh, something called the Seasteading Institute. And this was uh, his nonprofit to build politically autonomous floating cities in the middle of the ocean. This is like a, a huge anarchist thing. It was really popular among anarcho-capitalists. And back then I was like extremely anarcho-capitalist. And I just thought it was electrifying as an idea. I didn't realize there were people out there who had that kind of money who were putting it into things like this. It just was crazy to me. So yeah, I, I met him through that. I ended up volunteering for them. I met him through that organization. We became friends. Uh, and then through that, I learned about the tech industry. This is all to say that like, I didn't care about I mean, I didn't even care about money. I hate to even say it out loud because I think you tend to manifest these things and I would like to, yeah. to have money these days. But back then, yeah. I certainly, I was not thinking about money. Um, I was not thinking about, I, I cared about business kind of in the abstract a lot. I was libertarian. I, I thought business people, I kind of worshiped the idea of um, entrepreneurs and, and business, but I was never trying to be a venture capitalist. And I wouldn't today, I would never leave and, and work at another VC firm or I think start my own firm or something like that. It's it's very specific to the philosophy of Peter and, and Founders Fund in those early days. That was a big a big thing that I cared about. So I just talked about it all the time. And, and I, I would say in terms of how it's evolved over the years, I think the very first thing that Founders Fund was before I was around was just founder friendly. The idea of that now it's a meme. Everyone says they're founder friendly. I think almost no VC firm actually is. The only question you have to ask a VC is like, have you ever fired a founder? And if the answer is yes, then you're not founder friendly. The end. Founders Fund has never fired a founder. Something that people take really, really seriously there, have at least for since I've been there. Uh, and before that, that's where the name you know Founders Fund comes from. It's what they were going for. I think it was named by Luke Nosick back in the day. And a lot of this comes from, I think, the founding team's experience working with other VCs back when they were all at PayPal. Um, so that was the first thing. And then after that, around right when I started is when the sort of science fiction in real life stuff was heating up. And back then it was, it's interesting. It's like a lot of the critique that is thrown at the industry today, you know, that we're not focused on real shit and it's all just like Twitter for pets or something. We were the original crit critics of of Silicon Valley. That was a criticism that we leveled against the industry when tech journalism was still just like TechCrunch saying, we love this new app to everything. And we were like, this is bullshit. Like we can be doing a lot more and we should be doing a lot more. And um, that's not to say like social impact investing, which I think is sort of a lie. And we can get into that later. It's like actual, like massive seismic technological change um, in terms of, and back then it was like, it would have been like artificial intelligence, robotics, um, biotechnology, like anything, uh, nuclear energy was something that we were really into back then. Um, this was all in around 2011 when I started, when we put out something called the, the manifesto 
and so that was like sort of sort of like stage two and stage three is what we're at, what we're at now and i think that stage three like the, the sort of newest version of this and it's like it's they don't re- these things don't replace the ethos you know it's like we're still founder friendly and we're still the science fiction in real life fund in addition to everything else i mean we are series and stage agnostic we do uh, invest in all sorts of consumer things in, in addition to the the tech stuff and the science stuff. But the new thing I think that's been happening is Founders Fund increasingly is known as a team full of people who aren't afraid to say, you know, really controversial things that are true and important. And also a team that's not afraid to disagree with each other in public all the time. Uh, this is a team of people who do not agree. We do not believe in consensus truth among each other. Um, even in terms of it, it's like in an investment meeting, hearing these guys talk about like what is the the investment sort of like thesis of founders fund like they will fight with each other about this it is complicated there is there are certain things that we have some rough sort of like parameters and ways of thinking about things but i would say for the most part what's what's embraced at founders fund is thinking for yourself and being different it's like almost table stakes it's like you you have to have your own ideas. They cannot be coming from someone else. And you can kind of sniff out when someone's saying something that they don't even, that they don't believe in. You can kind of feel that. And that's just not something that, that we are. I think, I think, yeah, I think it's that. I think today it's like, we are the fund where you go when you believe something that you're not supposed to believe, but you know, it's important and you know, it's true uh, and you know, it can work. And, and that's where we are. And that's the sort of the spirit by which you named the conference that you're going to throw uh, Hereticon. Right, Hereticon. Yeah, it was canceled, unfortunately, because of COVID. But yeah, the idea was, I mean, the framing was like, what about a conference for people banned from other conferences? And that was, I mean, people were like, people lost their minds about this. They're like, how are you going to have an unsafe conference full of people who are banned for assaulting people? They took it to really weird places. That was never the intention. I mean, that was like, I was sort of like, imagine, I mean, I was trying to like set a, a tone. Hereticon is a conference for people who are all very unorthodox thinkers who are not, you know, necessarily championed in, in their respective fields of study. So, you know, heretical thinking, I was accused of all sorts of crazy, like right-wing stuff as if that's the only kind of heresy that can exist. I do think it's interesting that the media's mind went straight to right-wing politics, that that would be heretical. I don't know why they think it's heretical to say things that are right-wing, but um, I certainly don't. And that's not what we were focused on. We we had a whole range of topics, a lot of them technological topics. Um, so we had a guy working on a, a full body transplant. We had a lot of biohackers coming. We had tons of transhumanists coming. Um, everyone in the sort of body modification space, sex work is something that I'm really interested in. Uh, I'm interested in we had, you know, a defense panel. We had all sorts of like weird nutrition stuff. We did have some pretty problematic content lined up on the topics of uh, vaccinations, which I know would be super triggering just because I think it's a conversation honestly worth having. And I wanted to trigger like all of the science people who were coming. The one thing that I found again and again that I think is really interesting is I would invite someone. Uh, for example, there was a guy um, who... He was a sort of an evolution skeptic. And I was interested in that. I was like, all right. I mean, he had some interesting arguments about the fossil record. And I was like, let's hear more. And he started asking about the conference and he was fine with most of the topics. And I got to the vaccination stuff and he was like, oh, well, that's crazy. And I'm like, this is a guy who doesn't believe in evolution. So, I mean, it's like, <laughs> I, like everyone always thinks that, that like their weird thing is okay, but no one else's is. And especially it would come right. from the scientists. There was a guy, uh, this guy was kind of cool about the topics. For example, I mean, he was someone uh, who, he doesn't believe dark matter exists. He thinks it's a fraud and it's cool. I mean, he has really great talks on this. He's a physicist, he's a professor, uh, but he's super marginalized. He's not invited to, you know, physics conferences, your sort of standard mainstream physics conference. Same thing with a biohacker I was inviting uh, Josiah Zayner, who is not invited to sort of mainstream bio conferences, or if he is, he's sort of like, he's not, he's seen as like kind of icky and, you know, people yeah. turn their nose up at him. And it's like, I think these people are actually on the front, the frontier. That's the real frontier. That's the only place where new knowledge is happening. If it's the thinking behind this is like, if it's not a little bit scary to talk about it, if, if you're not facing any kind of ridicule or any kind of backlash whatsoever, then you're necessarily not working on something new. You can't possibly be. If it's universally loved, then it's just accepted, which means it, it just can't be new. That's not how that's not how we gain new knowledge. That's not that's just never how it's been throughout the history of science and technology. And I think probably most people working on something heretical or wrong 99.9% of the time, but it's that fraction of people 
who are right, who change the world. And, and that's what we wanted to, to sort of celebrate the, the fearless, yeah. the fearless innovators of the world. And is there, is real thinking behind this or justification behind it and sort of, I guess, justification behind free, you know, free speech defense more broadly that the idea that a heretical idea can, you know, thus can be correct and, and be, you know, net positive for the world is more powerful than the off chance that a heretical idea can be uh, dangerous and, you know, net, net negative if it captures hearts and hearts and minds, because there's so many people who want to shut down conversation. Uh, is that sort of the best way that you sort of describe the trade-off or, or the way to argue it to, to them? So people want to shut down conversation? Well, I think that if we're not growing, we're dying. I don't believe that you can just be in stasis as an organism. It's like, there's just two speeds here. It's you're either declining or you're, you're, you're rising. So it's like, if we just shut down all new ideas and we said, hey, we're going to live exactly as we are. We don't care about new innovations in science and technology. We don't care about new cultural ideas or innovations or philosophies. We're going to, you know, shut up all the troublemakers, excommunicate them, get them out of our, out of our world. And, and then because of that, you know, we won't have any new bad ideas. One, I just think morally, I mean, you're describing a bad world like that to me is an authoritarian, totalitarian state. I don't want to live there. That's like very scary to me. But I think more importantly too, it's an illusion that you can just freeze yourself in time. This has just never been the case. We've never seen ever. We've never seen that in human history. That's just not the way the world works. That's not reality. I think that you have to be growing and evolving and changing and learning and adapting. That's what we are. We're creatures that adapt and, and grow and evolve. Yeah. And is that what you're trying to do in, in your great podcast? I want to plug uh, Anatomy of Next, the Founders Fund podcast that you, you produce and create where you're trying to show sort of positive you know, science fiction opportunities. Yeah. And, and- yeah. The big dream of, of Anatomy of Next from day one, um, this is a podcast I started, I think, four years ago now. And I do it in seasons, take big breaks in between and think about new things to work on. I wanted to tell a different kind of story about the future because I think that this is actually the big problem that we're facing in the technology industry is the average person, both in business and it's like the hardcore tech guy at a company. And I think even the CEO at every level, we're really, really bad at at telling people what the world should look like, at, at like sort of like pointing in, in a direction. And I think that's really problematic these days because increasingly we are having outsized influence on the world. So if we don't have a clear vision or a story, of course, I mean, the media is insane, like really, really bad, especially the tech press, I think is like absolutely toxic. However, I think it's valid to be like, what are you doing like to the tech industry? Like, where are you taking us actually? Like, what is your end goal here? I think that, you know, this is a, a topic that's been beat to death, but our science fiction is extremely pessimistic and negative. I mean, can you even think of a single movie about genetic engineering that was positive? Like, where is that movie where it was a good thing? And if you, you maybe can't think of one, but it'll be one. It will be, it will be the exception that that makes the rule, which is like, it's generally seen as a totally evil, scary thing. I wanted to talk about, you know, the kinds of work that I'm seeing from the people in our community, companies that we're investing in, friends of ours. And I wanted to tell their story for them in a, in a, in a positive way. Like what happens? We know what happens if all of this goes wrong. You know, we're bombarded with that story, but what happens if all of this goes right? What are we working towards? What does utopia look like? And, uh, that's, that's where I set out with that one. Yeah. It's interesting to to go back to where we were talking about how Founders Fund has evolved and sort of juxtapose that with how the sort of perception of Silicon Valley has evolved. Of course, it was the darlings when when it helped get Obama elected. Then people started to get concerned about sort of the silly apps, the stupid apps. Then people started to get concerned that it's got too much power. Then, of course, that accelerated when it got, got Trump elected. W- where is it going in, in your view? Uh, the sort of perception of, of Silicon Valley, how, how is it evolving? How do you expect it to evolve and how should Silicon Valley respond to it? Well, the media is only going to hate us more and more and more until the very end. Like they're obviously, I mean, they're hemorrhaging jobs. They've been hemorrhaging jobs for decades and it's just been getting worse. Uh, the rise, and this is like another story that's been beat to death. Everyone knows that that the media business model no longer works, specifically journalists. Like that, it just does not work. We're looking at television too. I just found out the other day that PewDiePie has like a hundred million subscribers on YouTube. That's like I forget how many times more, but it's like significantly more than the number of total U.S. subscribers to cable television. That's the future. Wow. It's going to be that. It's influencers. It's it's like it's people putting tele, especially as technology improves and you can you can create 
television that looks just as good as what you're seeing on Netflix. Like everybody's going to be producing stuff. They're going to be working together online, collaboratively, remotely. I mean, that's the direction of content. So I don't think, yeah, the news, the, the sort of typical institutional press, the New York Times, things like that, that's on the decline. I think maybe a couple of them survive for a while, but also like cable news that that's on its way out as well. It's just a matter of time. And so they're just going to get angrier and angrier as technology gets better and better and empowers more and more people and makes them increasingly irrelevant. I think that right now they still do have a lot of power. They have a lot of cultural power. Everybody wants to be in the New York Times. That means a lot. Uh, people are willing to do and say a lot to be there. It hurts people a lot when they're attacked in, in, in something like the New York Times or for example, by a, a New York Times writer in on Twitter or whatever else, like all that matters today, but in, it matters less sort of every day. Um, so yeah, I think they'll get a lot angrier and everybody else, the rest of the population, it's just going to come down to whether or not life is getting better. And if it's getting better, people will be happy. And if it's getting worse, they won't. And in a world where where life is getting worse, generally, the people who are doing well are going to be the, the targets. So and maybe they should be. We should be making the world a better place. So that's that's that. When I think about the things I think you stand for, the things that are salient to me are sort of pro-technology, pro-capitalism, and pro-civil liberties, pro you know, for, for free free speech and, and due, due process. Freedom, I, th- yeah, they're all the same thing. It's it's that. It's freedom is the core value for me. They're all you, you kind of can't have one of those things without the other, in my opinion. How, how are we losing <laughs> or how, how does, how is that becoming increasingly more controversial? Like what is the cultural force by which that is, be, that is becoming more controversial or less popular? Yeah. I mean, there's always been this tension between collectivism and individualism and you could kind of reframe those and there are lots of different ways. People now say maybe like equality versus freedom is, is another cut on it. Um, but they're roughly the same thing. It's like the question is just at what point, you know, I can be free to a certain extent, but when does it start, you know, affecting other people? And it's, it's like, a, that's like the kind of messy question. And I think collectivism is really dangerous and damaging and disastrous. Like historically we see this, I, I think a little bit of caring about your community is important and you should have it. And certainly you see this at your family level or something like this, but I think that freedom and individuality are indispensable to human progress. I think without them, you don't have anything. How are we losing, you know, is for me, that comes down to, you know, what are the different polls offering? And so libertarianism, for example, and I mean, capital L, the party, the libertarian party, uh, these people never win elections. And I think the reason they never win elections is because they don't believe in the concept of like state power. They hold it in contempt. So of course they don't win elections. They're like really bad at this. Uh, likewise, sort of like strongly individualistic people tend not to to do well in groups. They tend not to organize together very well. They tend to sort of be doing their own thing. And we see that with our like sort of CEOs in Silicon Valley and our different uh, sort of like technologists and business people. They're not thinking, they're really, what they're excited about is like their cool project, their new technology, their new company. That's what they're focused on. They're not focused on like, how do we amass power and use it to control other people to build a world that, you know, we think top down is the best world to live in. I think that uh, that's one reason. So the sort of collectivist side of things, they, they tend to just organize a little more naturally. The other is that, and, and then now we have to make it sort of political. So socialism is an inherently moral philosophy. Um, I think it's, I think it's like, and by moral, I don't mean like it's good. I mean, like it is a morality. I think it's an I think it's a bad morality. I think it's a really disastrous, dark, sort of like evil morality that necessarily ends in slavery. Like you actually have to enslave people to make it work. But it is a morality. It's offering something moral in place. Whereas sort of free market capitalism is the absence of morality. It is just freedom. In a free world, it's like these things are sort of always, they're always pit against each other as antithetical to one another. But they're actually, they're just not even the same creature. In a world of free market capitalism, you know, America, let's say 200 years ago, people were not ascribing their morality from free market capitalism. They were ascribing their morality from God, from religion, from, uh, to a lesser extent, sort of national identity. These things are the things that mattered. As those things have collapsed, no one goes to church anymore. Nationalism is over. You can't even actually say the word nationalism anymore. Socialism offers... Uh, an actual morality. It's like a faith. It's like 
This is how to be a good person in the world. So now, you know, you have free market capitalists trying to compete on that ground and they do all sorts of weird things. You know, they'll talk about the fruits of capitalism. Well, isn't like this cure to this disease that saved a million people that wouldn't have happened had we not had a, you know, biomedical company that raised money and blah, 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 blah. It's like, that's just not a good story. No one understands that. It's super abstract. It, it's like, it is, it is not, it, it has to be like a right versus wrong sort of thing. Capitalism will never win at that because that's not what it is. People need to ascribe their morality from something else. And until that happens, I think, I think socialism will continue to make inroads. The only thing that will stop it is Bitcoin um, or something like it, cryptographically secure money, because I mean, at a certain level, um, this is something I think about a lot. Like, I mean, the sort of woke left, like the justice, it's like the squad and all this AOC, they're very frustrating people, but there's only so much that like the Bernie Sanders of the world can really do in a world where they don't control the money. And I think that we're closer to that world by the day. I mean, t- we're technically already in that world. It's just that people aren't, people aren't sort of using that emergency, like escape yeah. eject button. I think in any sort of Western state where communism becomes a real threat again, a lot of people are going to be, are going to be pulling the parachute. Yeah. So you, you understand branding. Uh, how, how, how does one or a culture make capitalism cool? Is it, or freedom cool? Is it the Elon approach of just sort of make it sexy, add a sort of swagger to it? Or, or do you think that's not enough on its own and you need a sort of either nationalism or resurgence or, or new you know, type of religion? So again, like, I don't think that capitalism is cool. And so it'll never be cool. It can't be, it's not. It's like, is oxygen cool? It, it, no, you need it to survive. Uh, like Elon is cool, but he's not cool because he's a capitalist. He's cool because he's building spaceships and he doesn't give a fuck what anybody says. And he's dating Grimes. That's why he's cool. Capitalism is not why he's cool. Capitalism is like breathing. If you don't have it, you die, but no one is ever walking around being like the air, you know, so cool. Love it. As opposed to whoever, I don't even know drugs or something. The, The drugs are cool. Air oxygen is not cool. All you can do is I think you like, have to like, defend it. I think you have to be relentless in defending it. I think what's what people are really good at is pointing out the flaws in socialism. I think the memes are completely on the side of of uh, of the capitalists and the free market people. It's not on the side of socialism. They are good. I mean, the socialist left is the best on the whole left. They're way better than like woke left. They're pretty good at memeing. But uh, I think it's like you meme and what we got to do. And I don't have any idea how to do something like this. I don't even know where to begin. No idea whatsoever. Um, I, I think that uh, we really need some kind of collective identity that um, we ascribe morality from that is not like political. It, it has to be something that's inherently apolitical. That's, that, that's maybe not apolitical, but that's not that does not that does not map to our traditional sort of two poles in in American politics. It has to be something that tr- that is beyond that. People have tried to do the futurism thing. I think it's too, it's not really accessible to the average person. It's inspi- It's very inspiring to a, a small fraction of people. And I tend to yeah. love those people. So for a long time, I didn't care. And I just kind of beat that drum relentlessly. But that's the average person. It just does not move them in the way that it does uh, a handful of us out in Silicon Valley. It, it's something else. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it looks like. It's, I know that it's out there. Uh, it's something that I'm interested in now. I'm definitely looking for it. Yeah. I, I want to name a, a type of technology and then ask for your take on either the, the tension that's there or the, the recommended way, but, but or your recommendation for how we should position it if we want to uh, pr- promote it or, or make it you know uh, appealing to a population. So uh, let's take something like genetic engineering we were talking about earlier or, or CRISPR or artificial wombs or anything you know related to the, this realm. Uh, so all that, I, I wrote about that a handful of years ago. It was a piece called What's I think it was uh, who's afraid of superhumanity. I'd have to go back and look, but the idea is that these are things that make you like a superhero. This is, this is it. This is the way that we become superhuman. And I think you focus on those things on the new, these like really exciting new things that we can do to ourselves or, 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 or the world. Um, the fact that you can, I think you just talk with genetic engineering. It's actually really easy. You just have to talk about the things that you can do with it. The, the sort of, ex, the, we, we can do this sort of, we've gotten better at this with artificial intelligence. There at least is some semblance of a, of a narrative there, but for, for genetic engineering, it's like, I mean, do you know that you could grow a building from a seed? Like, let's just start there. You go to biological factories. We could be producing energy. We could be genetically modifying our own body right now with a gene therapy to knock out a gene that inhibits muscle growth. We could all be ripped, jacked people just because our body will produce more muscle. Right now we have a, uh, we've evolved to 
limit the amount of muscle production because it it's really uh, calorie intensive. So for you know ancient subsistence like you know, uh, hunter gatherer type people, you didn't want to be producing lots of muscle growth that you didn't need, but we could do that. Like theoretically, this is like within the realm of, of possibility. I, I think that you, I think that you kind of talked about those things, but, yeah. uh, the, the biggest concerns people have are on the, and I want to hear your rebuttals to this are the, the nature argument of, Hey, there, there's sort of a natural way of being that we are messing with nature in a way we don't understand. Of course, that doesn't appreciate that we're already messing with nature in, in ways that extend our lot, you know, if you didn't mess with nature, five or six kids would be dead, you know, at birth and things like that. And then the other argument they bring up is the, is the inequality, uh, of course, which we, is a tough, once that sort of lodged in your head is sort of a paradigm, it's, it's tough to get, get it out. Yeah. How well, do you address Nature on the nature front? It's like nature wants to kill you. Fern Gully was propaganda. Uh, Pocahontas was pop- propaganda. Like, like nature literally just wants you to die. And everything that we've done, I mean, living in New York city, is anti-nature. And I'm not even talking about the buildings. I'm talking about the fact that they have winter living in Chicago, living in all of the North Canada as a nation, not natural. You could not live in these places without technology. So we're, we're already, we already intuitively understand that like nature wants to kill us. We, it just, it just begs repeating. I think once in a while yeah. to be like, Hey, nature is not perfect. It is not some fern gully shit. The Gaia hypothesis is nonsensical. Um, this like, it's like a leftist faith at this point that we're butting up against. It's a faith, uh, a faith-based idea, put it away. We're allowed to change nature to suit our, to suit our, our, our whims. Humans are the only creature that we know of in existence that is able to preserve life, to extend it beyond earth, to, to save it in a way. And I think that gives us a lot of a lot of leeway to do what, what suits us in terms of thriving and, and moving on into the world. I, in, in a way, I think that's actually the moral imperative for all humanity is to, is, to, is to spread life into the universe. And to do that, we have to alter the natural world. On the equality issue, it's like, it's hard to talk about this one because I almost don't even, it's like, I think it's an argument made in bad faith. It's like so obviously ridiculous. Every technology has improved the lives of every person on the planet and it has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And this argument can be made again and again, we can talk about computers and how like the homeless people, literally I live in the hate. So there's a tent city now where the McDonald's used to be and the homeless people have, have cell phones. Like that's incredible. That's how inexpensive they are. That's a, that's what technology does. That's the way the technology works. Drugs become increasingly uh, inexpensive. They become less expensive over time. Everything does. Um, but everybody knows that. And so when people make the equality issue, I think what they're really doing is they are using something that is sort of like a sacred cow at the moment. You can never say that we all shouldn't be hundred percent equal without getting completely attacked in a public square. They're, they're, atta- they're using that to attack something that they, they actually don't have a good argument against, but just for some intuitive reason, I, I think maybe it's the, the faith-based reason they don't like, which is technology broadly yeah it's like that's that i mean technology is good for poor people it's 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 not bad well just on on that note yeah people tend to think i mean there's the whole thing with people getting mad at elon for they're saying or they're saying he's greedy for they don't understand they they think that people gaining like building a business is taking away money that they would somehow have gotten otherwise i wish everyone was greedy enough to build rocket ships that land and uh, the boring company building tunnels under the earth and uh electric cars i mean you say you care about global warming how much do you really care about it like what is your core value do you think that the world needs to to be do you think that the planet needs to be saved or or perhaps do you just like throwing eggs at rich people because that's what it sounds like that's what i'm getting from the media actually that seems to be their chief their chief concern it's class warfare and it's like i don't give a fuck i do not i do not yeah. care how rich elon musk is if he is elevating humanity which is what he's doing i don't yeah. care that he's a jerk and honestly he seems to be sort of a jerk i don't care he's making the world better yeah. obviously everybody knows it like take give him more money i want him to yeah. have 10 times as much money 100 times i wish everybody was as greedy as elon musk yeah no, i love that are, are you familiar with nietzsche's idea of, of resentment or what sort of un, like if I think you told me maybe a decade ago that you were this person who was mad at rich people perhaps like if, if someone's listening to this and you're like oh i actually get uncomfortable with you know, people being so like, what's the way to sort of, I guess, red pill from class warfare or to, or, or, or from resentment, just or, or Nietzsche's idea of resentment more broadly. Uh, it's, it's tough because my, yeah, I used to be, when I was in college, I was briefly a Marxist. Um, 
but that was complicated. It's like, partly, I think I just wanted to excel at school. I was really into doing really well. I was like one of the top students in my class and that just mattered to me a lot back then. And I think I just knew that the way to do that was to be extremely left-wing in my politics. My professors loved me. I believed it back then. I really believed that I believed it. But looking back, you know, I'm like, what was the real reason that I was a Marxist briefly? Uh, And then I think the first thing that sort of started drifting me along this course was actually gay rights. And that had nothing to do with Marxism. It had to do with being left politically. And so in high school, I was like, oh shit, I'm gay and I want to get married. And like, it seems like Republicans hate gay people. So I was like, okay, well, screw Republicans. I hate them. And then you kind of just start to be like, oh, well, if they're super wrong about this issue, like maybe they're wrong about this issue. And all of my allies, sort of like gay allies, have these other beliefs that they wanted me to care about. And I was like, yeah, those things are cool too. Um, and one of those was like, far left economic stuff that led me to Marxism. And I don't know, it came on like a fever and I was just sort of like obsessed with it for a hot second and like systems of oppression and all of this. I have no idea how to get someone out of it. I just know that I was making an argument in class one day about why like no one should necessarily have a right to what they produce and everyone deserves everything. And it was specifically in the context of music. And as I was making the argument, I was just like, I don't believe what I'm saying. Like, I literally just don't believe this. And I just stopped, ta- I like put my hand down. Like I stopped <laughs> talking about it and I just thought about it for a minute. Um, and then I started reading more libertarian stuff and went through, uh, I-, I started as a libertarian and then I became a Marxist. And then I went to the extreme libertarianism, which is anarcho-capitalism. And now I'm sort of like small L libertarian generally, but it's complicated. And I try and just know that I'm probably wrong about a lot of stuff and I should be open to hearing things that make me uncomfortable, but I I have no idea how to get someone out of the headspace of, of a Marxist other than I think that Marxism is sort of linked with the idea that you don't have any control over your own life. And in a world where resources are stagnant, there's a set amount of them, limited amount of pie. Maybe everybody should have a piece in a world where you actually can't affect any change on your own life at all. Maybe it would be fair to have some sort of top-down repartitioning of resources and goods and giving people jobs and all these kinds of things, determining what people should be doing and producing and working. And but that's not the world that we live in. Like you can be anything. You can do whatever you want to do. You can escape any situation that you're in. Um, I know this firsthand for my family. Like I know that you can do anything. I've seen it. And everybody who has ever succeeded, not I'm not talking about people who were born wealthy, rich kids, and there are plenty of rich kids, like self-hating rich kids who are now like working at the New York Times, tweeting about how evil tech people are because tech people are self-creating. They are they are actually, for the most part, a value add in the, in the world. Not everything that we've done is good. There have been a lot of missteps, but for the most part, the technology industry represents, it is like the physical incarnation of the opposite of Marxism. It is the physical incarnation of the idea that you can build something out of nothing. You can, you can create new things. And, and one of those things can be yourself. It's like that idea is explicitly linked to free market capitalism. It is like a philosophy of empowerment. It will lift you up. And I believe it's an effective truth. I think that your life tends to become the thing that you believe. And if you believe that you can do anything and you are going to be wealthy and successful and happy, you're going to have those things. Um, if you believe the opposite, I think that you're not. Yeah, I love that. I want to segue into nuclear. We were talking about the environment a couple minutes ago with with Elon. Why is nuclear so unpopular? And what about the um, you know the the, the common arguments? Uh, what's the best rebuttal against the common arguments on just the climate change uh, front? That and they basically responding to your earlier point of we can alter nature, but maybe we're not doing it in the right way or the most sustainable way. Or right, I mean the nuclear question. People always want to say it's because of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and the threat of nuclear war. And I do think that that plays into it a little bit. I do think it's valid to be a little bit concerned about like thermonuclear war. I get that. Uh, It's very scary to be living in that world. However, that doesn't really explain why, for example, we're not all obsessed with natural gas, which is much, much, much better for the environment than oil and certainly better than coal. But from the left, all you want all you hear is is a call to ban fracking, whereas that would actually liberate us from these other fuel sources immediately right now today. And we could dramatically reduce uh, our carbon footprint. In fact, we have like America has reduced emissions for 
about a decade now, since the maybe over 15 years, like since the early 2000s, when at, at the point at which uh, fracking become at the point at which uh, fracking became a thing, uh, we started to reduce the amount of carbon we were putting into the atmosphere. It's much better for the environment. I think long-term, obviously you want a, a, a renewable resource or something that doesn't certainly something that's not as finite as a, as a carbon-based, any kind of carbon-based or natural gas or something like this. It's bigger than, than nuclear power is scary. I, I think it has to be something more like this faith-based concept that we're getting from the left, the far, far left, which is like nature is perfect and to be worshipped. And I mean, literally, you're seeing like a proliferation of, of like Wicca and stuff like this. My sister's a witch, like uh, literally uh, she like is a practicing witch and she has a bunch of witch friends and they're all like, I mean, they literally worship nature. That's a thing that's happening, which is whatever. Cool. However, it can't affect our policy like faith. There's a separation of church and state. Let's keep that. I think it's been pretty good for the most part. I love it. I think that people just want to believe that the magical spirit of Gaia is going to sustain us forever. And there's just something that aesthetically there is something about solar and wind that is just more aesthetically in line with their way of looking at the world than nuclear, which is technology and science and like man being God over nature or natural gas, which um, they see as a poison in, you know, we're burning fuel and releasing it into the atmosphere. And I get like, I I get why we want to get into a world where we don't have, you know, a a need for fossil fuels at all. Love that. Let's move towards that. But we could do that with nuclear today. Um, We could start that process and people don't want to do that. I think the waste is another thing. People have a sort of weird idea that there's all this nuclear waste that we're producing. And it's like, actually what I found out a couple of years ago is that you could fit all of the nuclear waste that we've ever produced in the history of nuclear energy, literally all of it, you could fit in a, in a football field. That, that's about how much nuclear waste we have. It is a problem. It is not an insurmountable problem. Yeah. H- how do we rebrand longevity to making it something that people are, that the culture is excited to, to produce? And how do we, um, you know, I, the biggest critique, I think people have, one was the quality you addressed that, but two is the, um, the death meme, that death provides meaning basically. I've gone back and forth on this today where I, where I've landed is, uh, and it could change tomorrow, but today I think the only reason the death meme persists is because people believe they can't live forever. And you don't actually have to work on branding longevity research. Uh, Maybe it would be helpful to have more dollars, you know, more people working on it and we can, we can, we can do that, but you know, we can, we can, I think we can be a, a little more talkative about it and tell a positive story about it and all of this, just kind of remind people that it's possible. Maybe we get some more, some more minds thinking about it that way. But what's really going to change the branding of longevity research is once we start seeing results, people are just going to want to live longer. I do not believe that people want to die. That's just, I just absolutely refuse to believe that. It just is not true. They want to be young and healthy for as long as they want to be. And so I think that once we start cracking some of this stuff, it's going to be slow, but we will see gains and people will want access to those, you know, whatever they are, drugs or ways of living that extend life. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to want them. So I don't think it's like, you're gonna have to worry about branding it. You have to just worry about getting it going. Right. How about AR and, and VR? People are worried about this world where ready player one, ready uh, player about one. World where you're, where you're always plugged in because they, you know, they believe this world is more real than, than that world. What's, what's sort of the best way to make sense of that or to brand that? Well, first of all, VR is a thing that Palmer Lucky would kill me right now if you heard me. But I, I mean, it's like clearly it's a thing that exists that people are not using a lot right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic and like people are not jacked into the virtual world. And yeah, it's going to get better and better and better. Maybe it'll be perfect one day. It's like that's such an abstract idea that it's not even it's almost not even worth seriously worrying. I think it's not worth seriously worrying about because I, I agree that people don't want to live in a world where they're jacked in all the time. Right now, we're under this sort of crazy cloud of COVID-19. And we have all of these tech people on Twitter talking about the future of work. And they're like, oh, well, in the future, uh, we're all going to be working from home and offices are canceled and musical concerts are canceled and no one's ever going to the movie theater again. That one might be true. Uh, Gyms are over. Everyone's going to be on a Peloton, you know, parties, clubs, grinder, all of it's gone. All of it. Dating apps over people don't, they're not going to be touching in public anymore. They're not going to be near each other. We're going to be in our little, you know, hermetically sealed cubes working remotely in, there's a scene in Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves where all of these kids have escaped the doomed planet and they're living in like these bubbles. 
And that's the future that they're talking about. And it's like, you don't have to worry about that because people don't want it. And when people don't want something, they don't buy into it. They're just, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to accept a world like that. We're already looking at it. The cracks in the foundation of this COVID quarantine are there and they're breaking. The dam is breaking. Uh, people are just going out to be with each other. People want to be with each other. So I think that's going to be the future. I think social, like the, the VR and AR, AR is different, but VR will play a role, you know, in gaming and some like interactions, it, it'll, it'll be a thing that we do. I think I really do think to some measure, it'll never replace actual physical contact. Something that I think I know, ne- I always sort of thought that I thought that for a while, at least I really, after COVID, I mean, I live alone and I, I'm, I'm realizing the extent to which I just need to hug someone, you know, like zoom chats are not cutting it for me. AR is different. I think that'll be ubiquitous. You know, AR is just an overlay on the world. We're already seeing it. I think that there are a million things that everything from surgery to, you know, professional, you're on a bike and you want to race against Lance Armstrong or something like AR is going to happen. It's just a very different beast. You're living in the world. It's into, it's technology that's integrated into our everyday life. I think there's no stopping that. How about uh, artificial intelligence? You had a post a while ago about how it's a Rorschach test. How how do we get over the concerns people have around basically humanity losing its, uh, you know, its, its superiority over other species or being subservient? Right. Well, I think the so the idea behind AI as a Rorschach test is that it's it's a tell into what you think not about technology but about about yourself. Um, it, it's a you only have with the question of artificial intelligence. What we're trying to do is figure out what a super intelligence would do. It's a really hard question. I, I don't know that there's actually a way to successfully do it, um, but we try, and it's fun to talk about. So here we are. The only way to even begin doing that, you you have exactly one example of intelligence that you know for sure how it how it operates, and that's your own intelligence. And so I think what a lot of people are doing when they're talking about the evil motivations of artificial intelligence, I think to a certain extent, and this is like a little bit a little bit scary, I think they're like projecting a sense of themselves into this like super amped up like in- intelligence. One, two, you know, separate from the Rorschach piece, it's like every indication that we have is that with greater intelligence, we have become more peaceful, caring, empathetic, benevolent. Our penal codes have, have lessened. We, we've become like much more kind. We've become kinder. I don't know the answer to what an AI would, will do. Who could possibly know that? I just know that the, the data is not on the side of, of the doomsayers. It's actually on the side of the people who think it might turn out pretty good. And I think there's a lot of really great progress leading up to AGI. We're nowhere close to AGI. That's like light years away. But there's a lot of important progress that we're going to get on the path to that. And that we need to keep working on. How about space and and kind of, you have a whole series on colonizing Mars. And uh, you had a problematic episode in your other podcast, Problematic, about aliens. And you've been tweeting a lot about it. And of course, there's a recent discovery that validated <laughs> that, you know, that put you on the map and, and some, and the, on the alien scene, at least. Talk a little bit about these topics. Yeah. Well, Mars is a totally separate topic for me than UFOs. Mars is a question of like, what is the ultimate purpose of mankind? I kind of alluded to it before. I think our, our purpose, the destiny of mankind is the stars and spreading life through the galaxy and the universe uh, or the universe and the, the, yeah, the galaxy and the universe. And it's kind of like also a metaphor. You know, if you can build a new world on Mars and make it perfect, maybe it's like a metaphor for life on earth as well. Like if you could build a world from scratch, what would it look like? And that's just a, a fun sort of way to think about the world. But aliens, aliens are interesting to me because specifically, let's say, I don't know anything about aliens. I don't know that aliens exist. I have no idea about aliens. What I do have some questions about are unidentified flying objects. And what is interesting to me about this question is we have a lot of evidence right now that they exist, that our government knows about them is not scared to talk about them, is confused about them, would love some help clearly parsing the information that they have, uh, and that they're actually not the only government that has th- this information. Stories, these are stories that are not, you know, being broken at ufodaily.com. These are in the New York Times and the Washington, I don't actually know about the Washington Post, but the New York Times. And I love to attack the New York Times until they are reporting on something that is important to me. And that is this, um, is like New York Times, CNN. I mean, the Pentagon comes out and says, 
these stories that have been leaked to the press are true. Here's the video footage. Here's all of our, here are all of our pilots who don't understand it and are watching it. And um, here's everything that we've said about it and, and, and talked about it and blah, 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 blah. I have no idea what they are. What I do know for a fact is that we went from, and this has happened a few times now because it keeps popping back into the media cycle when a new story breaks. That's again, credible. We go from about 24 hours of people joking about aliens and freaking out about them and maybe being like, oh my God, these are real to complete silence. It's like culture, society, civilization just forgets that these things exist, that this is happening. We are incapable of, there's something about this question that we are incapable of looking at and thinking about. And that to me is the only really interesting, that's the most interesting thing about the whole story to me is, is the way that we are just not able to talk about it. It is so outside, it is so far outside the Overton window that we just shut down. But actually it's like the idea of unidentified flying objects that apparently break the laws of known physics flying over US airspace. That's a huge deal. In, in it, we could list the ways there are, it's like, what is either aliens? Sure. That's crazy. Or what some kind of crazy other government program in China or Russia. That's a super advanced technology decades b- beyond our own, um, if not centuries. Yeah. That would be a huge story. Or it's a government conspiracy for some reason to make us want to believe in aliens. That's a huge story. Or the New York times has been scammed. CNN has been scammed. They believed this, the craziest fraud in history. That's a huge story. These are all stories that we would want to tell, that we should be telling. Any one of them would be insane if, if, if they were true. One of them has to be true. And we're not talking about it. And I, I don't understand why. Um, I think it's just, I'm endlessly fascinated by this, like the kinds of things that we can talk about and can't in society. Like, what is it about this topic that you can't talk about? You seem stupid or crazy, you know, like a Looney Tune and like, oh, you're a guy who's talking about UFOs. You must not be serious at all. I even felt stupid putting out the podcast episode. I was new to it. And now I'm like, fuck it. It's reported in the New York Times. Like, what do you want me to ignore that? It's aliens in the New York Times. I'm not ignoring it. Yeah. I think Peter I think Peter himself has a quote somewhere. It's like, when there's something you can't talk about, you should just assume there's some truth to it. Otherwise, people would be okay talking about it and just debunking it. Yeah, I think, it's, I think that with this one in particular, it is certainly that. Uh, and I, I think the reason that the, that the average person doesn't want to talk about it is because it just makes them uncomfortable. This is, this is one that's not some stupid political thing or some cultural. It is a taboo, but it's, it's for a different reason. It's like it makes people deeply uneasy. It's the same reason that you don't often talk about death. It just makes people really uneasy if there's a weird yeah. thing about it um this one though i think is one that like we're gonna have to address one of these days yeah l- l- going down the list uh l- let's talk about what silicon valley's or technology sort of uh perception and response to to politics and, and government should be and maybe we could start uh, or focus on uh even san francisco uh politics and government is a topic you've thought a lot about why is it that uh, you know, tech has so much power all over the world and yet can't really influence uh, lo- local politics even. Talk a little about what's what's happening as, as you see it, or like what explains our sort of present dysfunction. Well, I think it's a lot of things on the local politics front. I think in the first place, it's what we were talking about before. The average person in the technology industry is really just focused on their cool project that they're working on. That's what they're obsessed with. And they they don't really think much about anything else. I think another piece of it which would account for the average tech worker as opposed to sort of like the CEO or, you know, mad scientist in his garage would be San Francisco is so bad that no reasonable person in terms of government, you know, the education is bad. The public transportation is bad. Um, you know, it's like drugs and people shitting in the street. It's like that level bad. Like I alluded, I said before, I, I live just next to an actual tent city. It's bad in all manner of ways. The government refuses to address it. We have a district attorney who will not prosecute crime now. Literally, he worked for Hugo Chavez. Um, that's the person that we're talking about. His parents were actual terrorists who he has defended publicly. Like that's the level of San Francisco bad government. You can't build anything. Um, it is like hostile to the tech industry. Vaping is illegal. Like fuck that. And you look at that and you think, as a tech worker, like. I don't have a future here. So I love my job. I maybe love the kinds of stuff that we're working on. I love the city actually, like despite all of that, like I would love to live here if I could, but I can't afford a house. Uh, If I have kids, I can't send them to the school system. 
And so you kind of just clock out. You think, well, I'll be here and I'll work for a while. Then I'll have to move somewhere else. If it's maybe the suburbs of San Francisco, a lot of them are not much better, but they're a little better than the city or it's a different city completely. And we're seeing that, of course. I mean, that's been the trend for a while as people pop in, they make their money, they leave. I think that's really sad. And I think that comes down to just, they, they genuinely don't see a place for themselves here because we have a bunch of local government officials who have done everything in their power to make us feel like we don't have a place here. I, I think before we could ever possibly begin to affect political change, we have to actually own the fact that we live here. This is our city and we're allowed to want to change it. Actually, I've lived here for almost 10 years. At what point am, am I going to stop apologizing for existing? It's like, I should be allowed to want to change things and make them better in this city. I, I, I should be allowed to, to want to build a house to make it to, like, we should all be, we should, we should all be okay with the fact that we exist. It's like, I think generally that's like a, a persistent problem in the tech industry broadly is like, people are kind of not willing to defend their work and who they are. And they get beat up in the press constantly. And like, they never say anything about it. And I reject that completely. It's like, we need to we need to tell our story. We need to not be guilty for existing. We need to not be guilty for being here. We are doing good things in the world. We should be proud of them and we should make things even better. And I think, yeah, yeah. it is a shame that that we live, this is like the highest concentration of brilliant people probably in the world. And we live in a city like that's just broken in so many ways. We should absolutely be helping. And that starts with, we have to just own that we live here first. The irony is that to your point about hey we should be more proud of what we're doing and, and defend it is that the critique uh, tech often gets is that they're too sancti- sanctimonious about changing the world in ways that say Wall Street isn't and I disagree with that critique I, I think it's a brilliant st- sort of st- strategic critique uh, to to levy such that you prevent people from defending themselves by saying they're defending them they're too sensitive or it's whataboutism but it's just fascinating that that, that is widely shared I think saying we we want to change the world was probably always really messy rhetorically. And also just, if you're going to cast a spell, you have to be very careful about the words that you use because you can change the world in a million ways that are not positive. What we should have been doing from the start is, is saying exactly the kind of world that we want to live in and painting that picture and working towards that. And then it's very obvious when it's like, when you do something that's off book, people can just point to it and be like, that's not what you said you wanted to build. Um, because the truth is we have definitely changed the world in some dimensions, I think in most dimensions for the better and some, I think not so good. And yeah, that's where it starts is like, we have to be clearer about the story that we're telling about ourselves, our work and the future that we want to live in. And yeah, we're gonna get criticized again by the media just because it's like all, I mean, we've destroyed their business model. That's yeah. just, that's, that's just the fucking truth. That's what happened. But you got to ignore that. First of all, be the press ourselves. Second of all, we are all producing content in a way. I was talking about the media the other day with uh, Catherine Boyle and halfway through, I was like, I mean, we are, I'm the, I'm the media, you're the media. I think she said it, actually, she said it to me and I was like, yes, I, I believe that. It's like, we, we're the media. We're, we're a part of this ecosystem we got to keep doing that. We got to keep telling our story. Uh, we got to fight back when we're maligned. And uh, I think we have to do it for people who maybe can't, which is most people in Silicon Valley. They don't have yeah. the, the the platform, the opportunity. They're not protected by people like like we are. Certainly, I'm protected by everyone I work with. They, they empower me to, to speak my mind. Like there are lots of people who are not like that. I want to speak for them. I think we have right. to, I think we all, I think the people who can have to speak for them. Totally. And, and, and when we talk about the vision for technology, not just, you know, the technology itself, but how it makes the, the life of the worst person or of poor people better, basically. Um, so paint, paint a comprehensive vision. Well, I think that the, 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 the ultimate purpose is to build a world post scarcity. This is like super yeah. abundance. Like technology is leading us in that direction. Energy too cheap to meter. You start there with ubiquitous energy that is practically free you can do almost anything. We, we almost literally eat energy. Energy goes into the cost of transportation of food, into growing food, into like fertilizer in many cases is literally a byproduct of, of energy and petroleum and things like this. Like if we get to a point where we have unlimited energy, uh, the cost of building goes down, the cost of food goes down, the cost of, of labor goes down. Uh, water, we're going to be looking at a world of, of, water, war, of, uh, of water wars in, in the future. There are whole regions of the world that don't have access to fresh drinking water. We need desalination. The problem with 
The problem with desalination is it is extremely energy intensive. So it's like all of these problems are energy related. I think you just start there. Like we can reduce dramatically the cost of living. One, automation is another thing that does that. Like you you keep chipping away at this world. You want to kind of work towards the Star Trek world where you're like replicating food and everybody's got whatever they want materially. And then it just comes down to the question of, you know, what kind of person do you want to be? I think the scary thing is is in a world where actually all of your material needs are met, people will be, I think, for the most part, in America at least, where we generally do have our material needs met, I think people are going to be just as unhappy. But that's going to open up uh, that's going to open up the door to a whole new generation of of like therapists and life coaches and uh, new education things and like meditation, whatever. Like, I think people will have to just focus on themselves, and it's going to be painful at first, but but the path to self-improvement is there. And, uh, and the dream remains for me. I think the dream has to be like literally a world of post-scarcity where no one has to ever worry ever again about where their food's coming from, their water, their power, their shelter, their clothing, their education. Like all of these things can be powered by technology and the energy is like basically free software at scale is like very, very cheap. We, We can build that world. Yeah. And, and talk about, let's go to the therapy topic for a second. We were talking about this a separate topic about how basically trauma in some sort of bizarre way is becoming almost, you know, high status or something or, or a bit more glorified um, that people are sort of competing to be unhappier or, or, or have more problems. Is it because they want to showcase that they've overcome something? Is it because of a broader trend towards, you know, the less power you can prove you have, the more power you actually have or you'll get from, from others? Or how do, you, how do you sort of explain what's happening? I'm not sure. It's certainly a, a form of status today. I, I don't know where it came from exactly. I, I just know that it exists. You see it every day online. You see it in the real world. I mean, the way that people, our politicians talk now about certain like victimized states and, and whatnot, it's like, it's an, it's like a, it is like an important note to hit. You, you kind of have to say it. It's part of our daily like prayer or something. I think maybe it's, it's a really easy way to absolve yourself of personal responsibility and even that phrase, I mean, personal responsibility is a phrase you're not supposed to use. I get in trouble for it. But of course, what I mean by that is like personal empowerment. I, there's no such thing as an empowered person who's not responsible for themselves. That's always how it starts. You're responsible because you're empowered, because you're like, this is my life. And that's not a curse. It's like really exciting. It's an amazing thing. You're free to do whatever you want with your life. Like you can go and become whatever you want to become, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. It's it's a it's a harder path than just taking what the world gives you, and there's not much status there in just taking what the world gives you. So maybe this is like a a different form of it's like a it's a shortcut to status or something. Um, certainly, it absolves you of personal responsibility. If you believe in a world, if you ascribe you uh, ascribe to a world of you know I was born with what I have and I'll have it till the day I die because I'm completely disempowered. There's something freeing to that emotionally. You don't have the burden of your life on your own shoulders anymore, and that's just something that politicians and savvy people in the media have preyed upon. Maybe just a natural human inclination. Yeah, it's it's hard to say where it comes from. I just know what happens when you believe in it because I've seen it in my life. Everyone in my family who thought of themselves as a victim ended up that way. And every single person in my family who believed that they could be whatever they wanted to be built a better life for themselves. Yeah, it's just anecdotal. I get accused of all, I get accused of that all the time. But I know that it's true. It's like, I don't, I've never heard data that's more compelling. Like, where's the data on this, on the, the effect of story on your life? Never really seen that study, to be honest. I just know that this is true. I know that you can, I know that you can change your life. I've seen it too many times. I know how to do it. Like you have to believe in yourself and that's it. That's the first thing you, you can't force somebody to make a better life for themselves. It has to come from within. Totally. I want to close uh, by plugging um, your your other podcast. Uh, you're on a personal capacity, uh, problematic. So, uh, and I want to ask you, you know, if the mission of uh, Anatomy of Next is sort of to paint a sort of you know technological future that's possible, talk about the mission of, of problematic. One of the things I, I see you doing is sort of uh, addressing, you know, maybe you could think about the culture war as like it's freedom versus equality across a bunch of different you know axes or, or different sort of subsectors where this that sort of philosophical battle plays out. I'm curious, how do you think about what the goal of the podcast is? And I guess additionally, but separately, how do you think about what is sort of like the fundamental, like what's happening with the culture war? Like 
what do we talk about when we talk about that concept? Yeah. So problematic is definitely like, it's like anatomy of next after dark. <laughs> it's like all the questions that I don't ask because that's like my PG show. That's my, my work show. Problematic is, is like all the base stuff that I talk about in group threads and things like this. The, the questions that you're not supposed to ask, the topics you're not supposed to mine and explore. Those to me are, have always, since I was a kid, like those are just the only things that are exciting to me. That's where all of the where the drama is and the fire is like, that's where the life is. That's where we are actually as a people ad hoc deciding what we're going to be as a people. That's why those conversations are so electric is because they're alive. They're important. And um, that's everything from what we're allowed to do with our bodies to, you know, everything happening with like gender and sex. And yeah, I did. I mean, I had the UFO episode because I do think that in a weird way, like UFO stuff and parapsychology stuff, these are sort of like, the original, the original taboos, like the, the weird, like, like ooky spooky, like, like science stuff, um, like to to a scientist, like the things they, they would turn their nose up against. I kind of wanted to like trigger myself a little bit. Like what are the things that I have always been like instinctively against? And that was certainly one of them in terms of what the culture war is. And certainly, I, yeah, I'm definitely reacting to that with a name like problematic. How could I not be? I think for a long time in America, a lot of different kinds of people were left out of the conversation and excluded or heard, I mean, literally laws against them. It was illegal to be a gay person. Like you could not have gay sex. It was illegal in I think every state in the country. Um, not even that long ago. I, you could go, I mean, we see footage of gay men in bars in like the sixties being arrested for being in a gay bar. That was it. That was the whole crime. Civil rights, like everything with the black community in America, like clearly we've, we've been through a lot. And I think that, you know, like Americans are in a really beautiful way looking inward and, and thinking like, wow, we've been really wrong and bad in a lot of different ways. I think that America is amazing. I think most people have a sense of like we've done net really positive things in the world. I think that and if I had to make that case, I could right now. Um, but separate from that, there it's like what's happening now is just this moment of self-reflection. Like, how can we be better? And I think that's good. But I think that well-meaning impulse to be like self-reflective and and improve and be better is being taken advantage of by a lot of people who maybe are not even talking about the things they say they're talking about. Like so much of the culture war uh, in terms of of like race and gender and like queer stuff, um, it's not really about it, it. It always is actually, I think, about class. I think what we're really seeing is a resurgence of Marxism. I think that you have a lot of people who are really socialist and they're using rhetorical weapons, uh, really any rhetorical weapon they have. And one of them is to prey on, you know, all of the social baggage that, that America has and to sort of poke at that and be like, that's what this is really about. Like, this isn't about the free market or so it's like, you're a racist or you're a sexist. Like you hate gay people. I think, I think that's what's, I think that's what's happening. What's happening today. It's like, it's like bound up in the victim stuff. It's bound up in socialism. It's like, it's very complicated and messy. And, and the average American just has a real, a real weakness here because again, like the history has been pretty bad. And so, you know, someone is screaming at your face that you're a bad person and you think, well, shit, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Maybe I am a bad person. Maybe I'll just keep my mouth shut. You know what they're saying? Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, it seems pretty unfair but I don't know who am I to talk. Um, I think that's, that's sort of like roughly without getting into specifics. Like I think that's yeah. roughly the dynamic. There are all of these things that, that, that free people open society should be talking about. And we're just not. And um, yeah, I'm hoping to just kind of broaden that Overton window a little bit. Totally. My, my absolute last question to you is how do you, as just sort of like from a sociologist perspective or just like observing <laughs> culture, how do you explain sort of the, uh, anti-American um, sentiment from from many Americans is it you know generational rebellion you know gener- you know being spoiled and wanting to rebel is it you know belief that uh, or just a, a ploy to get more resources how, how do you how do you explain the that sentiment maybe the absence of a boogeyman or common enemy I think certainly the absence of an enemy is a big part of it you know the collapse of communism was not great for uh, American identity as with the collapse of like, you know, national sentiment, like the us first them thing was always a powerful motivator. But I think it's, again, it's like the truth is America did do a lot of messed up things. And I think Vietnam is when we first 
really, really, really started to doubt ourselves correctly. I think there was like a horrible war and we should have never gone there and we should have never done that to the youth of that generation. And we did. And coming out of that, there were a lot of, there was a lot of self-doubt that that self-doubt ended up fueling the music that would come to define what cool was for the entire second half of the 20th century, rock and roll. And we're still kind of living with that. That That's like, that's not gone away. That has persisted and been passed on generation to generation of artists and writers and creative people. And it's like, you know, like fight the power, fight the man. It was cool to rise up against the cops in, you know, the deep South when they were, you know, fire hosing black people because it, it should have been like, that was messed up. The state was wrong in all of these ways. And then also the anti-state thing is like, deep inside of America's core. There's always a suspicion of power and America's powerful. I think it's like, I I don't want to say that anti-Americanism is bad. It's like, I think the impulse to be self-critical is important. And what makes us unique as a culture is this suspicion of authority. What I wish is that we would also be able to focus on the good. And there's a lot of it. And why are we not focused on that? Like, where does that come from? I don't know, man. I don't know the answer. All I know is that, is that with such a negative view on who we are, it's like, you're not talking about some distant remote land. You're talking about yourself. We are America. We're America. If you hate America, you hate yourself. It's like, we're a part of that. We are, are the ones, we are the agents of change within this country. So, so it's like more of a read on, on what you think about you and your friends and your family than, than it is about this country, which is again, like an abstract concept. Um, and that is really concerning to me, the sort of like deep self-hatred that I'm seeing from a lot of young people. I don't know. I don't know exactly where it's coming from. I think it's coming from, it's like a lot of places, modernity cuts in a lot of different directions. I I just know that we got to get over it. I know that we we like have to move past it. Well, uh, on that note, some perfect antidotes for that are are anatomy of next uh, and problematic. Uh, also follow Mike on Twitter, uh, M-I-C Solana. Uh, my guest today has been Mike Solana, uh, VP at Founders Fund. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was awesome to be here. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.